Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today we have a joint interview. And the reason why is because we're going to be covering retail. We're going to be talking about food, the food industry, distribution, uh, seasonality, and also the role of, of companies and retail brands in building out corporate social responsibility programs, providing uh, a form of role modelship for larger companies, and perhaps discussing the impact social impact firms have on the economy today and in the future. With us, we have two founders, Jenny Dawson, who's the founder and CEO of Rubies in the Rubble, and Alex Mesger, who you might have had his ice cream in the past um, from Jude's Ice Cream. Uh, he's joint MD there. So thanks, guys, for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So let's start off with, uh, with Jenny. Jenny, walk us through the story of how you started your company and what does, it, what does it do? Well, Ruby's in the Rubble is a brand of delicious tasting condiments made from fruit and vegetables that would otherwise be discarded. And I suppose as it started it in 2012, after researching around food waste and realizing the implications of it and the scale of it financially, environmentally, um, but also sort of morally that we're wasting a third of what we produce globally and um, how, how are we going to feed a growing population while we continue to waste this much? It just didn't make sense to me. Um, I suppose it originally it started, I was brought up on a farm on the west coast of Scotland. Um, my parents were very sustainably minded. We grew everything on the farm. And my mother used to preserve things that we couldn't use in season from her vegetable garden. And taking her old recipes, I just knew that was a very traditional way of preserving and when I started researching and seeing all this fruit and veg being discarded, I thought I'm going to start a range of condiments that not only preserve and, and are a practical solution to food waste, but uh, also raise awareness of it. So that's what the brand does really, great tasting products that raise awareness of the need to value our food supply system. Excellent. So with regards to the, the family origin, are you in business with your family at the moment or was it just you and then you brought friends along? Yeah, no, no, it's just me. I actually started with a group of uh, homeless women in East London. Um, I wanted the whole thing to be, uh, I suppose, utilising things that are overseen um, or overlooked in society. Uh, so people that were deemed as unemployable, um, everything was recycled, the jam jars, the, the labels, everything that we did initially. And then as we grew, I realised... I needed to make a bigger impact and to concentrate on one thing. And I think I was slightly naive of what I could do with a business and trying to do too much in one go. Um, and my real passion was around food sustainability. So I went down that one angle, um, started on fruit and veg wholesale markets, and then we moved direct to work with large scale farmers across the country. Um, and I've had real support from supermarkets as well because they say that they can't take around 30% of the crop from farmers because it's the wrong shape or size or color or just won't sell. Wow. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground already in what <laughs> yeah. you do. So we'll come and revisit some of that because it sounds like some of that is how you thought about scaling. Mm. So we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But before then, uh, Alex, maybe you can walk us through the origin story of Jude's and, and sort of what your current role is. Yeah, um, so Jude's Ice Cream was started in 2002 as a retirement hobby of my dad's. Uh, we grew up on uh, an old farmyard and 
dad uh, has never been a farmer, but it was always his dream to be a farmer. Um, and he was thinking like, what, what can I do with my farmyard? Uh, it used to be a dairy farm. It's too small to be commercial as a, to be a commercial dairy. Um, but he's, uh, he's got a sweet tooth. He loves his food. Um, and stumbled across the idea of, of making ice cream. So he went and read everything that he could possibly read about ice cream and, uh, started really just with his, with his bare hands, um, making ice cream. Um, he, wandered over the field to our local village pub and uh, suggested that they might try uh, using Jude's ice cream in their pub. And the landlord there was incredibly supportive, is incredibly supportive. And uh, over several months, they developed some delicious flavours. Uh, I saw what Dad was doing and saw the fun that he was having and uh, told him about six months into it that uh, I wanted to join in. Um, he tried to discourage me and told me it was an irresponsible idea. Um, but uh, I joined him and uh, yeah, that was that was the start of my involvement. And we, uh, time has flown by. We um, started focusing on the, the restaurant industry um, because, uh, yeah, because of the pub and because there are lots of great restaurants and gastro pubs around us. Um, and we focus on the seasons, so different times of year, different flavors. And we just found that um, speaking to these local restaurateurs that there was no one really offering seasonality um, and a great British story with it. Um, and so that was really the, the start of Jude's. Since then, we've, yeah, it's, it, it's been a few years now. Um, we still consider um, food service, so restaurants, hotels, gastro pubs to be, um, well, that, that's where we started and, and um, that's, the largest part of our business uh, remains the largest part of our business, mm. but um, a little bit, bit like Jenny, supermarkets um, have also um, been very supportive of us, uh, and we're having yeah a good time on all fronts, um, both in the food service and and in the supermarket retail sector. Yeah, it's a, it's a great success story, and what what sometimes is lost in these success stories are the little details that allow you to get there. So we're going to jump into that. And you brought up two points, which I, I really want to dig deeper into. The first one is family. So we're going to go back to that in a second in terms of working with family and, and how does that, how do you manage that? So we'll, we'll touch upon that in a second. And we'll touch upon also seasonality, which both of you sort of have brought up differently. Uh, but before we go there, I think one of the things that is, is unique about businesses like yours is that the perception is that I'm the customer. And we are. We're the ones that ultimately put it in our mouths. But the way you just articulated it was restaurants was really kind of who had the pain point. And so maybe you can walk us through, maybe Jenny, what, other than obviously the people uh, enjoying it, um, how did you identify who, who was the real first customer that you felt was, okay, this is not just selling to my friends who really like it, but actually I have a business and this is, this is actually my customer segment. Um, and, and also, if you did any sort of like quantitative or anything sort of super fancy or was it just like luck and sort of trial and error. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think everyone um, has different ways of starting or running a business. My personality, I'm not much of a planner. Um, I'm definitely, I do things on gut. And when I started, I didn't even really know what I was doing. I put a market stall on Borough Market, was selling there. Then 
one of the first people to reach us, uh, sort of get in touch, was actually Fortnum and Masons, which was great. It's the first place to be um, established and just for recognition and quality assurance as well. Uh, and then Waitrose got in touch uh, through reading an article around sustainability and said, we need you guys in the store. And we started just on eight in eight stores in London um, and then grew that to 16 and then 40. Um, but I think... I think initially, I mean, we've been working with Eat, which is a sandwich shop in um, London, and uh, well, I suppose it's it's UK wide, but it's um, they were their first food service customer. They got in touch and said, "We we love what you do. We want to start supporting you. Let's get get your products into our sandwiches." So we supply our pink onion marmalade to Eat, and it, it goes into their sandwiches. And we suddenly realised that getting on someone's menu in a food service your rate of sale is sort of guaranteed. It's much more regular. Um, you can also play with seasonality as well because chefs love to change their menu every season rather than a retailer often wanting something that is year-round and can be consistent. Um, so that, that really opened our eyes up to, we were very concentrated before in building our brand and getting into retail and suddenly seeing that support in Eat and, and now our biggest customer is Virgin and, um, and and seeing how we can actually work really closely with uh, a food service um, customer is really interesting. Hmm. Well, would you say that now customer development or product development, like the ones that you mentioned, you I don't know if you want to share what is coming down the pipe, but <laughs> like the ones that you mentioned earlier when we were offline, um, are those products because people are demanding new things from you or is it because your customers, the, the, the resellers, the virgins, the waitresses of the world are asking for them and therefore you're now catering to their needs? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I uh, get really excited about developing new products so we're always coming up with new ideas and I think in growing and it's we were only five years old but in this journey I've really learned to to scale back and to focus. Um, originally, we looked at snacks for a while. We looked at pasta sauces because Tesco's wanted a tomato sauce from surplus. And we really were sort of scattergun approach and felt like no one would really know what we did. Um, so looking at condiments feels like an area that being so small and having very small resources and, and looking to market and things that we can concentrate on that area. So we are developing different products in the condiments area of, of looking into salad dressings and mayonnaises and ketchups that we've just launched and, and um, our chutneys and relishes and these, but keeping it as a, everything's preserved, it's in a jar and hopefully so people see it as, as the, the added flavor to transform a meal. Mm. How, about, how about with Jude's? How, how did you ultimately decide to scale the early customer base? Was it pub by pub? restaurant by restaurant, direct-to-consumer online? Yeah, no, it's been very organic growth for, for Jude's. Um, we've always kept um, our manuf- well, we kept our manufacturing in-house and there's only so quickly that we can grow as a business. We sort of set ourselves, um, it depends how you look at it. Um, I don't know if it's very ambitious or, or, or modest growth targets, but we've always said if we can grow by 25% a year, we think that's a very manageable growth. And so we have, um, in terms of geography, we've, as I said, we started just across the field and we started in Hampshire. That's still our, our homeland. That's where we're best known. 
And we've kind of just grown gradually out from there. Um, obviously, distribution is a challenge. And so um, it makes sense from a distribution point of view. But it's been uh, very organic, uh, sort of one gastro pub at a time. Um, our customers have obviously grown as, as our capacity has grown with us. Um, but uh, yeah, in response to the question, it's been very organic growth. And has it been selective organic growth? I mean, Jenny, I know from your story that to some extent this, this has been opportune um, traders who have come and approached you to distribute your product. But with Jude's, like, have you have you actively been curating who you want to stock your product, um, or or have you, you know, tried to build a brand through scarcity and sort of premiumness? Is there is there a market still for that, or is it? Is it just something you rewrite history afterwards and you say, yes, I was exclusive, but in reality it was whoever came yeah. first showed up to the door and was willing to pay? Um, our customers have kind of picked themselves. So we're at a certain, we're, we like to think of ourselves as making the very best ice cream in the UK. And uh, in order to make the best ice cream, it needs the best ingredients. Uh, and that means that we're at a certain price point. So. Our customers have very much sort of picked themselves. Of course, we've targeted customers who we want to, um, who, who we like the idea of working with. Um, but it's funny how customers have kind of picked themselves. Hmm. On the on the subject of ingredients, so I was listening to this interesting podcast by the the, the founder of uh, Five Guys Burgers. I'm sure you you've had some, um, and he was talking how his family, his, his kids, would be the ones that would select the ingredients. And they didn't even give him like constraints on the cost. They just wanted to make sure it was like the best ingredients. Um, he said that a specific mayo they tried and it was, you know, it did taste better, even though it was like twice the price. Uh, for both of you, how, and, and I know Jenny, yours is supplied in a very specific way, which is part of the brand. But how do you deal with um, the, the cost of goods that make up your product and do you decide that, you know, maybe Jude's is, is a premium brand, do you basically say, look, I'm not going to pull any stops or, or are you hitting the point of scale where you're thinking, okay, maybe I need to bring this in-house or maybe it's no longer something where I can buy branded products? My dad started off with a good philosophy. He said, well, we'll make the best product we possibly can and then we'll look at how much that costs and how much we're going to need to charge for it. So. I think that and that approach has served us well. So the focus is on making an excellent product first, um, and then we we'll worry about the commercials afterwards. Um, so it's it's it means being totally uncompromising on the ingredients that we're finding um, and the ingredients that we're using to make the ice cream. Um, of course, as we've grown, we've been able to, and with a bit more scale. Um, We've been able to get better prices and we've also developed strong relationships with our suppliers who understand what we're about um, and where we are being pressed on price. Of, you know, we'll, we'll pick up the phone to our suppliers and explain the situation. And we've, um, yeah, nine times out of 10, you know, we can uh, figure out a solution um, if, if it's attractive for everyone and, and, and we see that this is um, a customer that we want to be working with. Mm. And you have, have you had any issues with with getting a, into a pricing war for replacing somebody within a restaurant or within a, a stockist? Or, or is it that kind of thing where you're just basically the premium brand and, and you're just on the top of the pile? We 
always try to avoid getting in a pricing war mm. because we're not set up for pricing wars. Mm. Um, you can always find cheaper. Um, if, if it's about price, if it's down to price and price alone, we'll, we'll walk away. And I think that's a really interesting challenge uh, to have, the, to have the, the, the confidence and the courage of your own conviction to, to walk away. And people respect that. And, and, and so often when you actually say that this is, this is the point that, that we, we, we can't go any further, we, then so often the customer will turn around and say, actually, we respect that and we want that quality of product. And we appreciate we need to pay a little bit extra for it. And, yeah. uh, and you move on from there. So on the, on the topic of pricing, Jenny, maybe or both of you can answer this. So Jenny, I know that your supply chain is kind of funny because in some extent your 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 source is perhaps cheaper in some ways, mm-hmm. and you're making gold out of it, literally rubies in the rubble out of it, and that means that you have kind of the pick of the litter in terms of your pricing. Um, so maybe you can walk us through kind of how you see that scaling up, but also on the, on the pricing side, both of you can answer. Is generally people perceive that startups undercharge, like the it's easier to think about whether I undercut my competitor, but how about, do you think that your products actually have room for charging more? Uh, I think it's really interesting what um, Alex was saying on where you where you are and the cost of your products and things and, and what you stand for as a brand and knowing who you are and what, what you will and what won't do. Um, with our with rubies in the rubble, I suppose because the whole nature of it is trying to support farmers to create a market for part of their crop, which tastes great, and it's there's nothing wrong with it other than it's, it's the wrong shape or size, or it might be that it has got a very short shelf life on it, and it can't sit in a in a warehouse and then go on a shelf, um, so it doesn't have a 15 day life on it. So we've got to really um, turn it round very quickly. It's often when it is odd shaped as well. There's a lot of processing involved on our side of hand peeling bananas chopping up small onions um, and starting with fresh tomatoes rather than tin tomatoes that that a lot of our competitors would do um, or actually doing everything in the UK rather than bringing in fruit that's from Europe or from Poland from a, a country that's a lot cheaper to process fruit and veg so um, it's always a hard one for us to communicate when people say, "Oh, but your your source is pretty much free, and it's um, you know it's wasted, it's, it's being thrown away at the moment." Um, and then why are your products so expensive? And part of that is because when I started them, they were based on homemade recipes, and I like really good relishes, and I think a relish or a condiment is something that should transform your meal and and really bring it alive. And so um, when, whenever we've tried to change our flavours, um, and especially ones that have been rewarded great taste awards and, and sort of been really recognised and customers are constantly going backwards for them, uh, back to them and, and raving around them, I just wouldn't want to ever change that. Um, we had a real problem where we were trying to grow and we outsourced our production. We now work with three different manufacturers in the UK uh, and finding a manufacturer that was willing to take fresh fruit and veg on site rather than frozen or um, IQF'd or in tinned and take the time to simmer down tomatoes or, or our pink onion marmalade is done overnight for seven hours and actually taking locking up a, computer, a, a, a kettle for that long a period. Um, but we didn't really, we didn't want to change our flavours. So I think there's 
like similar to Alex, your customer base is defined by who values your product as well. Um, and rather than us, I suppose, assuming who might pay the money for it or, or might value it, um, it's always really surprising and lovely to come across companies that just say, no, we, we want to support British farmers. We want to buy something that we really believe in mm. um, and we love your product. So I think on the... And all the things that you just mentioned, they're all parts of what I would call your brand, your, your brand values, the, the elements, and there's more that we're going to cover, like the, 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 some of the CSR opportunities that you, that you bring. But branding is such a tricky job, especially in a highly competitive market. You know, uh, you're entering a market that, you know, is, is both of you are, are littered in supermarkets with tons of competitors. And not only just having a product that tastes better, but also that stands out in the mind of the customer. How do you guys think through that? How do you like, for example, um, Alex? You you guys just launched this uh, this black ice cream, which is the coolest black thing. coconut. Black coconut. So great. It is the coolest <laughs> thing ever. And, and actually, uh, customer feedback: the, the best thing is afterwards you have black teeth, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's so cool. It, it's got so much entertainment value. Give it to your mom and you see what happens. Um, so how, how is it that you think through that? You know, not just which products you develop, but the, the personality of the brand. Like, is, is, would you say that Jude's is tongue-in-cheek? Would you say that Ruby's is tongue I don't know. Like, how would you define that brand, especially with, with, with Jude's where it's a family business, who kind of owns that personality? And, and how is that trade-off uh, negotiated? <clears throat> We've tried to keep Jude's as faithful to uh, ourselves as possible. And then there's... Uh, and then it's easy because you just have you just have to be yourselves. Um, so um, yeah, we are a family business. Um, we uh, families at the centre of Jude's are the first members of staff were family. Then it was people living in our village, uh, and now it's people living in our sort of wider community. Like, I grew up with plenty of our staff, um, so it really is family through and through. And we think that yeah. We try to be faithful to those values in, in everything that we do, in the way that we treat our suppliers, in the way that we treat um, our customers, in, the, in our voice, in, in, in how we're communicating with, with everyone. Um, but like walk us through like how you negotiate internally, like for example, your brother Chow, right? Like I, I know both of you and you're very different, you know? And I, how did this idea of a black coconut ice cream come Were you like having some beers in the pub that stocked your first ice cream and said, you know what, I know, let's make it color black. How did, how did, that, how did that happen? Um, in terms of working with a family, it's, it is interesting and we do have very different personalities, but uh, there's also, I, th I think it's sort of grounded in, in respect, uh, knowing each other, knowing each other's strengths and trying to work to each other's strengths. So Chow, for example, looks after the marketing and, and development side. Uh, and so I interfere to a point, but I also know that I don't make the, the last decision uh, there. And so it's respecting that, uh, that, that, that I'm straying into somebody else's territory when it comes to marketing and development. So uh, full credit with Black Coconut to the marketing and development team. And where the ideas come from, uh, it's reading loads, it's uh, eating lots of food, it's looking uh, abroad as well. Um, 
the ice cream market in America, for example, is is so established. It's so massive, um, and there are some really cool things coming out of there. So, it's it's reading uh, loads and just being open to to new ideas. Um, we pride ourselves on on our innovation and trying to be first to market with things. Uh, it salted caramel is such a huge flavor now absolutely everywhere but we believe it or not were the first guys to bring salted caramel ice cream to the uk however many years ago or something like eight years ago um and that sort of innovation is something it's part of our dna we massively over invest in innovation we've got uh, one of our biggest teams within jeans is our innovation team and they've got and they've got really strong backgrounds as well excellent training and we're just encouraging uh, the team to, to keep pushing boundaries, to keep discovering the next big flavour. Um, what Flat white coffee, we launched that um, a few months ago. We launched a Sipsmith gin and tonic ice cream that has, got, has been really picked up in the media as well and continues to just grow and grow. Um, we're just about to launch a sticky toffee pudding ice cream that we think is just quintessentially British. And uh, we've partnered with Cartmel, who we think make the best sticky toffee pudding uh, out there. And so um, it's just constantly trying to, to, to push boundaries. But back to your question on family, it's respecting um, mm-hmm. each other's roles within the business. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting, Jenny, about Alex's uh, sort of views is that they're eight years in the making of, of sort of a brand and working together with his family, whereas to some extent you're kind of inventing this as you go along. I mean, your company's yeah. a lot younger than that. How have you been thinking about your brand? I mean, you shared all the values, you shared kind of part of the story, which is in, in effect a large part of how people see you as different, mm-hmm. but then the rest of it, how do you talk about the brand? Is it just your personality or, or have you, you know, in some cases, some people will find an opportunity and then carve out that personality for that opportunity. How, how did you think through it? Um, I think initially, um, so we we changed our branding actually. Um, we started with a very clean, it was almost sort of Scandinavian look, bold colours, very elegant print. And um, when I started Ruby's, I was really conscious that I wanted the products to be seen as the, the bomb. Like they had to sell themselves, they had to be nothing linked with that there's anything wrong with this product because my whole message was to value the whole food supply chain and it's all about great taste so I wanted the products to look premium and look great as well um, and, and I never really mentioned why I did it or the actual purpose behind it it was very small print at the back um, and you had to really dive in the in the website to have a look at, at anything and then um, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, we rebranded and that was all based on, um, we're a very small team, we're all very young, we're London based, uh, we felt like we were getting lost with all the traditional chutney brands and condiment brands and actually as a personality and the people within the team, we were all incredibly vibrant and loved like smacking strong flavours and really good products and um and wanted to bring a lot of that into the brand and the feel and the look of the product and not be lost on the shelf and really shout about our message as well. I think as well for timing, food waste was a very hippie notion when we started and then it became uh, more mainstream and in the press and people saw it as a sustainable or linked it with environment and and being thoughtful and educated to actually stop stop uh, or reduce food waste. So we became a lot more bold and we started putting it on the front of pack. Um, our branding is now black and white, which is very different from most food products. 
Um, it's quite funky, handmade patterns. Um, our language as well is a lot more chatty. Um, we really, it's a very playful language. And I think a lot of that does describe the team. Um, it's, it's a very strange mix though. I think, I think when we think of who we are as a team, it's, it's fun and innovative. Our flavors are very innovative. We have a banana ketchup. Um, Joanna launched a blueberry barbecue sauce this summer. Um, we're, we're also looking into vegan mayonnaises. They're always sort of something quite different around them. Um, so the, the flavors sort of match our brand. But then um, at the same time, it's about being authentic as well and being a brand with a purpose and that we're really strong and pushing that purpose as well. Um, so I do a lot of speaking events and that is very much part of who we are as a brand of, of shouting a message. So I, I want to go back to that idea of, of having a message and a brand in, in a bit. But before we go there, maybe we can sort of park the whole go-to-market conversation with some advice that you could give to uh, yourselves um, if you had to do this all over again on how to, or maybe somebody else who, who didn't have the connections that maybe you had, uh, maybe that first pub in, near your town, Alex, but what would you recommend for those first key customers and which kind of customers would you have stayed away from that were tempting as a first pass? It's so tempting to go big too quickly. Uh, it's a big reason why we st- Spent, have spent so much of our lives working, focusing on food service. Um, the great thing about food service is it's all about the product. It comes in a four-liter white tub, um, and it's all about. But it's all about the flavor. It's all about the ice cream. So we've had um, so many years of just working on the quality of the product, um, working with small individual pubs who can tolerate um, the fact that it's a it's a small business that, that, that not every batch tastes exactly the same, um, that, that we have some amazing flavors and sometimes we'll try and push boundaries and, and, and they won't work. Um, Black Coconut, um, thankfully, was a huge success, has been a huge success. But um, there's always that heart in your mouth moment when you launch something and you think, how are people going to receive this? Um, so it's, it's working with people who uh, get your business um, are prepared to uh, experience success, but also tolerate some mistakes from you. Um, so not trying to bite off too much. Um, yeah, with the big boys, with the supermarkets, you can't afford to make mistakes. And so um, you get one chance at it. And so you need to be as good as you possibly can be, as strong as you possibly can be. Um, before you start that conversation, before you put the product in front of the the big supermarkets, Jenny, I'd echo a lot of that. Um, we are still very small. Um, as we grow as well, there's a limit to how fast we can grow. Our products are we're hitting capacity with one of our manufacturers. It's very hard to find another manufacturer that will take on our model. We're thinking of bringing it back in house to allow a lot more growth. Um, and there's, I think, especially as a small brand with limited resources, we would much prefer to do a really good job in one area and really focus on those customers and and support them really well, uh, rather than I think we've learned in the past of trying to spread ourselves very thin and getting lost um, because you're not supporting it either on shelf or uh, with that that company that you're supplying to. 
Um, in terms of like sort of starting up a product, I think it's always really good to start small because um, start small, see if there's a demand for what you're doing. You'll fail quickly um, and you'll the main thing, you can have the best will in the world and the best idea, but if there's no demand for it, um, you're, no one's going to buy it and it can never be sustainable. So I, th- I think that is always a great thing to do, if whether it's just finding somebody close by or a market or, or engaging with a consumer. Um, with ours, when I look back on, on ideas, I mean, I love chutneys. Um, I love condiments. I was brought up on them. But they are not a weekly shop for most consumers. In fact, not many people eat chutney. And um, when I look back to when we started, it probably would have been very clever to start with a product that actually people engage with and, and consume either all in one go or um, buy it very regularly rather than something that is very seasonal. So I think I think in terms of sort of looking at your product as well, you've got to do something you're passionate about. And I wouldn't change what product I, I started with, but um, if I was making it easier for myself, you would have gone into something that you knew had had lots of legs and people understood it as well, rather than educating them about the product as well as what you do and why yours is better. Mm, good points there. If we move to your team and keeping your team motivated, uh, maybe before you answer the question, uh, just you know, let the audience know how, how big your current team is. But what are the key KPIs that you currently track? I mean, obviously revenue is a big one and, and that's more like from the top line side of things. But in terms of, of internally, what, what are the KPIs that you use um, as a sort of a proxy for success later down the road? Is it, uh, I mean, I don't know anything about production of, of, of ice cream, but I presume that um, dairy, the dairy operations need to have a certain yield before you can, you know, come up with a product or securing a certain amount of, of ingredients before you can even uh, do some things or, or, or distribution agreements. I, I don't know. I'm inventing as I go along here. But perhaps, Alex, you can kick it off with how big's your team and what are the key KPIs you guys track? Um, <laughs> I think last count, so we had our team summer get together um, where we have a big barbecue and play rounders and um, all have a big picnic. Um, it's, uh, and I think we were 50 in total. So, um, it, it's quite, I have to pinch mm-hmm. myself to think that we're 50 people now, but, uh, I, that's most of our team are on the, on the production side. So it's making ice cream, delivering ice cream. Um, it requires lots of people. Um, uh, there was a time when it was my dad and I doing all of that, doing the distribution, bringing on new customers, the account sides, just absolutely everything. Um, so we are 50 people now. Um, when it comes to the staff, uh, our KP, I mean, a really good measure of how we're doing is that we hold on to staff. And um, when people start with dudes, we pride ourselves on thinking that they're not going to leave um, because we look after them. We... Uh, we want people to thrive at, at Jude's. Um, we will quite often, um, quite often when we're recruiting people, um, we will go out with um, not very specific um, criteria of what we're looking for because our thinking is if we can find the right person and play to their strengths, then they're going to benefit Jude's, but they're also going to thrive. So we're trying to... Um, we're trying to help people thrive at, at Jude's, and, and thankfully there are a sufficient number of roles now within our within Jude's 
that it's quite easy to fight to play to people's strengths. But I mean, you said 25% year on year growth. Yeah. And that's no easy feat. I mean, how do you map that into people's roles? You know, it's great that you find them the right roles, but yeah. how do you trickle that down and keeping 50 people inspired and, and working like a seamless machine uh, to deliver on that 25% growth? Um, it's about setting a vision. Uh, about people, about the team buying into that vision. Uh, we um, internally go on and on about making the best possible ice cream. And we think that, well, we tell everyone in our team that every single person is playing a critical role, whatever job you're doing, in contributing to that best British ice cream. So it's so exciting to show people around our dairy and for them to not just hear it from us, but hear it from everyone that they speak to, that they'll have the vision of Jude just echo back to them as they wander f- through the various parts of, of, of our dairy and our pr- production facility, so that everyone takes real pride in, in, in their role, that they get their role within the team of 50 people, um, but that we're all aiming for the same output, and that's an excellent product. So on, on the topic of excellent product, but within the scope of the KPI question, Jenny, you mentioned that one of your suppliers or that you were looking for was the fact that they would stock fresh fruit, not just frozen fruit. Would, would a cape, I mean, how do you think about the time from product, from uh, product delivery of supply of, of the cost of the goods that you then make into a chutney to the production of it? Is that one of the KPIs, how fast you can take these ingredients and move them out so that you can then say this was done really, you know, within the scope of its freshness window? Or do you have other KPIs that you track? Mm. Um, I mean, we're very different from Jude's, I suppose. We're a team of five, very small. Um, we work working direct with farm. I suppose our K- KPIs, um, the sort of main objectives and the, the company KPIs are um, zero waste. Uh, so if we have moved, say, two tonnes of bananas, especially in summer when it's heat waves and uh, time, you need to be, we want them when they're really ripe because they make the best banana ketchup rather than underripe, they're very starchy. So we'll take them when they're ripe and then you need to process them very quickly. So it's peeling, um, blending, and then getting them cooked sort of with, all within, so we, we'll do that within two days from the farm to our manufacturer. So that's a very fast process. Similarly with tomatoes, tomatoes will normally be between four days um, but we track our our yield of uh, processing, so that'll be that'll be often on the farmer as well of how good the product is, and especially with apples and things. If there's a lot of peeling or decoring, or if you're working with very small onions, you've often got quite a lot of waste with the skin and the, the, um, and just top and tailing them. So it'll vary on the product quality, um, the how well we act as a team, and making sure that there's no slip ups with the courier with um, with getting them to the first first of the port of call, which is our processor, and then to the manufacturer. Um, but that for us is a real success if we've we've hit it. Then the other side, I suppose, is with, with normal business with our sales, but alongside that, because every product is between 60 and 80% packed full of fresh fruit and veg, we might we we um our one of our biggest KPIs is our impact with that. So we will track every tomato, every onion 
every banana that's gone in, the yield that we've lost in the production of that, um, and and what our impact has been on the the fruit that's been saved, the value that's been to the farmer, and then also the carbon footprint of that fruit because it would have otherwise been wasted. So we've got quite a few trackings of of KPIs, um, but I think I think as a team and as we grow, it's very similar to to Alex that. I think a business, a successful business is always because you've got a successful and happy team behind it and no one is going to put 100% into it unless they feel that they're valued and they're, they're, they're getting something from the company as well. Um, and it's very easy for me to say that we're good at that because there's only five of us and it's, we're very close as a team. Um, I would call them all really close friends, it, even if they weren't in the business. So, um, so, so understanding... They're outside of the the their challenges outside of work as well, and um and and really respecting each other, I think is is key and um, mm. getting on. So moving on to the topic of social impact, both of you have different ways that you help um, not only your local communities but also the, the missions that the larger missions you guys have. Um, before you kind of talk about your individual companies, think think about some of the companies that you might know that have social impact. What do you think the industry of social impact is doing wrong? And what do you think it needs to get right so that more companies embrace uh, that as an angle that is just, it's, it's, it's a requirement rather than a whole category in of itself? I'm not going to criticize anyone, but I think that you, it's just, it's more than talking about it. That's the, that, that's the key that um, I, I think, the consumer in this day and age is is sufficiently smart that uh, you need that, that they need to see a whole lot more when they scratch the surface when when, when beyond just um, just nodding to it um, and yeah it, from day one uh, again this is a decision we we it was a very easy decision um, that we decided we were going to give ten percent of our profits away to charity. Um, I think that's just a very, um, it's an outward and visible sign of our intent. And there the focus, well, we wanted to focus our, our giving. And so um, we all, as a, as, a, as a leadership team, we passionately want to support um, young people. And so, yeah, our, our two charities that we um, support, uh, that we give, 90% of our of our profits to um, is Home for Good and that's um, an adoption charity that does uh, amazing things at uh, amazing work at finding homes for um, kid, kids without parents kids who need loving homes um, and then the second charity is uh, Spear who um, again kids kids who've had a, um, a tough start in life helping them into employment and and uh, both of those charities are exceptionally run. That we uh, we love the work that they do, and um, it, it it's such a joy to give money to to, to both charities. Hmm. Jenny, I think um, I think it's really exciting to see um, things changing in for profit companies, big and small. That I think there's an awareness of the consumer is looking for something more than just. Um, a product that they're buying into the personality of the brand and what that company does and I I remember uh, before I started Rubies in the Rubble I was working in the city and um, 
it was back in 2010, 11 time where charities were getting really squeezed and people people didn't have as much disposable income as they did. The financial crisis was really um, putting a toll on people. And uh, I sort of really believe that we live in a capitalist society and companies have got a, um, an expectation and responsibility to address problems in our community. And there is clever ways of doing that. And it's, it's not by having an add-on to your product um, or an add-on to your business. I think it should be intrinsic in everything you're doing as a company. And it's it makes it easier as well because it's not something as an afterthought that you're doing. It's something that you have to do to make your business tick or to produce your service or your product. Um, and I, I can see that happening. There's so many as well great companies that are, whether it's the, the way you deliver or the people that you um, employ for your couriers or um, the who you just choose to buy in and who you choose to partner with and other brands and suppliers. There's so many ways that you can make your company um, have an impact in, in society. And I think I find it very exciting that consumers are expecting that. I think companies to um, be able to thrive going forward, they have to be sustainable and they have to be mindful of the environment. And at the end, the consumer is king. Um, the consumer is the person that's going to buy and, and take their services. And if that's what they want, I think it's very encouraging that companies are going to have to move into doing something better in that area. Excellent. Thanks. If um, I always like to, to wrap up with... A couple of fun questions. Uh, either one of you can pick who wants to go first. Um, let's see. Uh, what's um, if, if you could undo one moment in your life, what would it be? You can go first. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go first. Um, I need a bit of bit more time to think about that one. What's one bad habit you're trying to get rid of? <laughs> Carlos. I'm definitely trying to get rid of um, having my phone in my bedroom. I noticed that I, uh, very boring bad habit, but um, I just, I don't, that there's a new app where it checks how often you check your phone and things, but I'm really conscious of making sure that when I started Ruby's, I wanted to make sure that I had a really good lifestyle work balance. And I think there's so many things you've got to consciously do to snap those habits. Um, so very boringly, I'm going to, trying to distance myself away. <laughs> that phone one's a good one. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've got two little kids and um, I occasionally catch myself looking at my phone and uh, I, I catch my kids looking at me looking at my phone when I should be hanging out with them and it's so bad. <laughs> um, so I'm really trying to discipline myself around, around phone usage, particularly at home. Mm. All right, so... What's one thing that you used to strongly believe in, but now you realize you were fundamentally misguided about? I, I want to go back, sorry, I just want to go back to that undo one moment. Yeah. I was just, what popped into my head is some of our sort of worst flavors that we've created over the years. Nice. <laughs> That's the worst one. Uh, we made, a, so we're from Winchester, we're just outside Winchester in Hampshire, and um, one of the... Cheese. Cheese <laughs> is watercress. So we made a watercress ice cream um, because uh, a, a local watercress um, grower contacted us and said, hey, for this watercress festival, wouldn't it be amazing if you made a watercress ice cream? And we said, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. We'd love to make you a watercress ice cream. And as the sort of festival approached, we, were, we just 
we, we realised this is going to be really hard to do well. And we did produce something and lots of uh, brave people tried it, but it was... I think that is our yeah. That's one flavour I would happily undo and never make again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe you could take the next one, Jenny. It's like what what was one thing that you strongly held as an opinion, and that now you're like, yeah, that was uh, I had that wrong. Um, I suppose I've always been biased towards small companies, as in a preference over them. And slowly over time, I'm starting to see that being big, you can make a big impact as long as it's ran sort of well. Um, and the challenges as well of growth. And I think before starting a company, you think that everyone can be angels in the in in the business sort of the way you run a business. But there's so many. Um, I suppose you, you've got so many people that you're answering to um, of of profit. You're trying to provide. Uh, income to people you're you're looking after your team but you're also trying to do a great job and, and there's a lot of strains on trying to do the best possible thing um, and realising that you can't always do exactly what you want first time I think I think starting Ruby's I really thought that you could you could sort of do exactly what you want and it would float and it would be sustainable and it would work and realising that um that you've got to grow first and you've got to start somewhere and you can have the best intent um, and know where you're going and know what your purpose is, but it's a, it's a path and it takes time to get there. Excellent. Well, guys, thanks for joining us. I know that uh, it's always it's kind of funny looking back at all the things you've achieved and, and seeing it in fresh eyes, but I think everyone who hears this hopefully will get inspiration from your wisdom. So with that, guys, until next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.